Hello, welcome to episode number 123 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode we hear from Alan Mikhail, Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History at Yale University and the author of a new book called God's Shadow, Sultan Selim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World, which is published recently by Norton. It's a hugely ambitious continent-spanning work retelling the story of the Ottoman Empire's heyday in the early modern period through to the reign of Selim I, who ruled from 1512 to 1520 and who is sometimes known in English as Selim the Grim, but in Turkish as Yavuz Sultan Selim or Selim the Brave. This era saw seismic changes in both Ottoman and world history, which Alan Mikhail weaves together expertly, and in our conversation we cover as much of that ground as possible. But before we get started, first let me remind you that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper into the subject. To become a member just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Alan Mikhail. The book examines both Selim I's reign and the era preceding it, during which the Ottoman Empire loomed large in the imagination of Christian Europe, where the perceived clash of civilizations shaped the thoughts and actions of many generations. I started by asking Alan Mikhail why, at this point, did he decide to research and write on the life and times of Selim I? So, um, we're speaking in August 2020. Selim dies in September 1520. So we're coming up on the 500 year anniversary of his death. A couple years ago, it was the 500 year anniversary of 1516-1517, the Ottoman defeat of the Mamluk Empire, which is a key moment in the book. So there's that kind of topicality in terms of anniversary. That's not necessarily the reason that I'm interested in Selim. I'm interested most broadly in, I think, a moment that historians of the Ottoman world and historians of the world more generally haven't paid as much attention to as it deserves. And that is 1516-1517, the moment when the Ottoman Empire more than doubles in size, becomes a majority Muslim empire for the first time in its history, comes to take the shape that it will maintain until World War One. So Selim is the sultan who undertakes this massive expansion of imperial territory. So I really wanted to understand that moment of world history in depth. 
depth. I have spent most of my career so far working on the history of the Ottomans in the Arab world, specifically in Egypt. And so this this moment is the beginning of that history when the Ottomans capture North Africa and the Middle East as, as we know it today. Selim was born in 1470 and he came to the Ottoman throne in 1512. Could you just sketch out for us really the run up to those years, you know, the context essentially? What position was the Ottoman Empire in in the world? Where were its territories? How was it seen? How did it see itself? Basically, what position did the Ottoman Empire have in the world system before Selim I became Sultan? So in 1470, the empire is basically an empire of the Balkans and Western Anatolia. It had conquered, obviously, Constantinople in 1453 to connect what up until that point were two disconnected pieces of the empire. So it's really unified from the Balkans through to the center of Anatolia. It's at that point has been around for 150 years. It's a major player in the Eastern Mediterranean. Europeans are obviously very conscious of Ottoman moves in the Adriatic, in places like Albania, throughout the Balkans. The major power in the Middle East at this point is the Mamluk Empire, which had been in existence for about 200 years up to that point, centered in Cairo, controlling most of the Arab world up into eastern Anatolia, parts of Iraq, the Hejaz, and North Africa. They, the Mamluk Empire, have a legitimate claim to being the leaders of the Muslim world in that they held Mecca and Medina, and they're one of the largest Muslim states in terms of the population at that point. The Ottoman Empire, by contrast, up until Selim's reign, is a majority Christian empire. The majority of the people who live there are Orthodox Christians. Culturally, we would say, depends where exactly we're talking about in the empire, but in the broadest, in the broadest brushstrokes, we would say it's maybe Greek culturally, with a kind of elite Turkish overlay of the ruling family. So that's the position of the Ottomans. They are strong, not the most powerful, certainly a force to be reckoned with, you know, a, a major a major player in the eastern Mediterranean. And Selim has this grim reputation. Uh, he's known among yes. many as uh, Selim the Grim. And there are plenty of uh, gruesome anecdotes about him. You describe him as the, quote, archetypal Machiavellian politician. So he was pretty ruthless and he killed his brothers in order to reach the throne, as many uh, Ottoman sultans did, of course. But would you say that so Selim's uh, particularly brutal, fearsome reputation is warranted? Or do you think the picture is a bit more complicated? Well, as usual with these things, it's a bit more complicated. He does have this reputation, I think, for good reason, partly because he's unique in multiple kinds of ways. He's unique in that he's one of the few non-favored sons to win the throne. And so when I refer to him as the archetypal Machiavellian politician, that's largely what I mean there, that he's able to maneuver, position himself through a combination of realpolitik and sort of long-term strategizing to move from a position of weakness to a position of strength and, and outwit his older brothers. He's also unique in that he deposes a sitting sultan. Very rarely does that happen in the Ottoman Empire. Usually succession occurs when a sultan dies. He's unique in that historians debate this a little bit, but as best we know, he has only one son that survives into adulthood, who is the famous Suleiman the Magnificent. So he 
he's unique in all those kinds of ways that position him to have a, a particular place within Ottoman history. He also is known as the Grim because he spends most of his life, even before his reign, which is rather short, it's only eight years, but he spends most of his life through his reign and then until his death in battle. So he is posted as governor to Trabzon in um, 1487 when he's a, a teenager, 17 years old, with his mother. This is one of the furthest outposts in eastern Anatolia for the empire at this point. It's right on the border with the Caucasus, with Iran, and he's constantly battling raiders from the east who are coming on Trabzon's territory and pushing out against them. He leads a raid against Georgia while he's governor of Trabzon, for example, and then various other raids east into Safavid, what will become Safavid um, and Ak Koyunlu territory. When he becomes Sultan, again, through a very bloody succession battle that, that maybe we'll get into, you know, he spends the vast majority of his reign on campaign against the Mamluks, against the Safavids, and uh, along the way against the Safavids, for example, part of his reputation today is that he he leads one of the largest massacres in Ottoman history against Ottoman Shiites. 40,000 are killed in that moment. And uh, for Alevis in Turkey today, who see their lineages coming from some of these families in central Anatolia, this is obviously a, um, a moment of a lot of trauma and is part of the reason for his very negative reputation. So that's some of the, the reasoning behind his name, Selim the Grim, which we could also translate potentially as Selim the Resolute or the Stalwart or something like that. I'm very conscious in the book of not trying to rescue his reputation. Uh, this is not a hagiography. Um, I have no interest in, in sort of being for or against Salim. You know, one of the attractions, I think, of doing the kind of work that I do in this book that's a kind of biography, a life and times of an individual, is to try to capture all of their complexity, the negative and the positive. Now, unlike previous sultans, Selim really concentrated his uh, military operations almost exclusively in the east. And his reign saw this transformation, essentially, in the character of the Ottoman Empire because of the way that he expanded the Ottoman borders to the east and to the south, basically incorporating many Muslim-majority Arab territories into the empire after beating back and defeating the Mamluk Empire, which was previously the predominant Muslim power in those areas. And crucially, those territorial expansions included the Hijaz, so the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, which really gave the Ottoman Empire legitimacy as the world's leading Sunni Muslim power and uh, really allowed Selim to claim to be caliph, which no Ottoman sultans could before. Just talk about how uh, Selim's reign transformed the character of the Ottoman Empire in that sense. What was it seen as before and what did it become afterwards? So, again, after his defeat of the Mamluk Empire, the Ottoman Empire more than doubles the size of its territory. Uh, it brings in millions of millions of Arabs, predominantly Arabs, but other peoples as well, predominantly Muslim, not exclusively, but predominantly. So the, the empire after 1517 transitions from being, again, in very broad brushstrokes, a kind of orthodox, almost Greek acculturated empire to one that's more Muslim, has more of a 
kind of Arab Turkish character. And so that changes the empire forever until until its end. And and as I said before, it gives the empire its shape until World War One. There are some, you know, nibbles in various directions, but basically that's the shape of the empire for the next four hundred years. So crucially, crucially important. As you say, the defeat of the Mamluk Empire is not just about territory and um, expanding into the Indian Ocean and into North Africa, but also has lots of implications for the kind of rhetorical powers of legitimation that Salim and later sultans will be able to use as the foremost power in the Muslim world. In 1517, the Ottomans gain Mecca and Medina. They gain also, crucially, places like Damascus, Aleppo, and Cairo. All of these cities are major centers of Islamic learning that produce texts and scholars that really shape Islamic letters around the world. So all of these people are now under the aegis of the Ottoman Empire. And so that in and of itself shifts some of the kind of center of gravity of the Muslim world a little northwest towards Istanbul. So after 1517, you have many scholars coming to to work in Istanbul, sponsored by the empire, the creation of schools for the teaching of the Islamic sciences in Istanbul. The elevation of Turkish as a language of Islamic learning in a way that it hadn't really been before occurs in this period as well. Selim, as you mentioned, is the first sultan who can claim to be both caliph and sultan, crucially. And therefore, it is his responsibility and his honor, we might say, to be the sponsor of the annual pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina and to be the person responsible for the upkeep of holy sites and the patrimony of Islam. And, um, you know, that elevates the place of the Ottomans in the Muslim world and around the world as uh, the paragons of Islamic power. Now, there's an earlier generation of scholars that see this moment rather than one of expansion or advantage gaining, if you like. Uh, They see it as a moment of loss. Instead of being a empire that in their mind was tolerant, was majority Christian, somehow had a democratic ethos, and they use this language. After 1517, with the influx of Muslims, of Arabs, that somehow this drags the Ottomans backward. It pulls them into the East in a way that they weren't before 1517. There's a clear kind of politics of EU integration, just to be crude about it, that occurs in some of this historiography that sees the Ottomans as almost Europeans before 1517, and then somehow more Muslims more Arab, more backward, more Eastern after 1517. So I argue against that kind of polemical view in the book. I see 1517 as a moment of global power for the Ottoman Empire. It's really what puts them on the world stage. And as I said, it's it's what makes them the empire they will be for the next 400 years. So we really have to understand that moment on its own terms and then understand its implications for the rest of Ottoman history. So this whole process put Sunnism really at the centre of the Ottoman imperial identity and uh, essentially weaponised it against the uh, empire's non-Sunni foes. So Selim's reign was also the period when the Sunni-Shia rivalry became much sharper as the Ottomans faced off with the uh, Shia Safavid empire to the east in today's Iran. And you describe this in the book and um, some of the battles that occurred between these two imperial rivals. But in addition to the battles between the uh, Ottomans and the Safavids, 
Salim also spearheaded, as you mentioned before, this quite brutal set of uh, campaigns against the uh, non-Sunni Muslims of the Ottoman Empire, the Kizilbash of Anatolia, the antecedents of uh, Alevis in today's Turkey. Could you talk about that? You know, how did the Ottoman uh, Safavid rivalry sharpen the uh, respective Sunni and Shia characters of these two states? That's right. So it's important, I think, for us to keep in mind that this process is one that is occurring around the world. So some scholars refer to this as confessionalization, which is the term that's used to understand how political states attach their legitimacy to religion in a new way in the 16th century. So this is true in Catholic Spain. It will become true for Protestant powers in Europe a bit later. And it's true of the Ottomans and the Safavids. They're all working against each other and looking for terms of legitimation against the other. So in the Middle East, um, the Safavid Empire is, is the, the formal beginning of it is 1501. And in large measure, they adopt Shiism as a religion of state in some ways to contrast themselves with the Ottomans who are, are Sunnis. In response to that, the Ottomans gird themselves more strongly to Sunnism, again, to contrast themselves with the Shiites of Iran. And and then after 1516 and 1517, once they've won Mecca and Medina, it's really then that you, you see this language of Sunniism and of Sunniism being a form of universal kingship, of universal rule around the world for Muslim and non-Muslim, for Sunni and Shiite, etc., really getting going. And the Safavids have their own version of this in which they see Shiism as a idiom of universal rule that spreads far beyond their own empire. So it's really that kind of rhetoric of ramping up claims to universality and to the rightness of rule that the Ottomans and the Safavids use against one another on the battlefield. And you see this, for example, in the letters that are exchanged between the sovereigns. Salim and Ismail have a famous correspondence that I talk about in the book in which they are essentially cursing and insulting one another using epithets about Sunniism and about Shiism. And so it's really there that you begin to see, I don't want to be I don't want to be too crude about it but you begin to see this this quote unquote divide between Sunnism and Shiism really ramping up in the Middle East of course Sunnis and Shiites had long existed around the world uh, from you know the first century of Islam but this is the moment in which these different versions of Islam are attached to the ideologies of states and as you say weaponized against each other ultimately I think this is about land resources territory geopolitics but it gets attached to this kind of language of religion. The question of, for example, Salim's own personal religiosity, I think, is an open one. It's not obvious to me that the sources allow us really to understand that in a deep way. We could say the same thing about, about Ismail, for example, the Safavid ruler. So it's really politics wrapped in a language of religiosity, I think, is the right way of thinking about this. And as the two empires faced off in this era, the Ottomans came out on top, I think it's fair to say. There was this Battle of Chaldaran 1514 that ended with a decisive Ottoman victory over the Safavids. And really, there was, following that battle, there was this sense that you describe in the book that the Ottoman Empire could have pushed forward and really put the final nail in the coffin, essentially, of the Safavid Empire, but it didn't. Just talk about the kind of how the power balances between the two empires shifted over the course of Selim's reign. 
Yes, in 1514 is a key battle uh, between the Ottomans and the Safavids, their first major war. Uh, there had been skirmishes previously, but this is the first time that they bring all the resources of their states to bear. Some historians think this is the largest army ever assembled in the Middle East, the Ottoman army, up to 200,000 soldiers. And they march all the way across Anatolia, from Istanbul all the way to the east to Chaldron. It's during that march, I should say, that this this massacre of Ottoman Shiites occurs in 1513. So Chaldron is significant because it is the first major campaign of Selim's reign as Sultan. Uh, he becomes Sultan in 1512. He dispatches his brothers, you know, in the first about nine months of his reign. And then his first major campaign as Sultan is against the Safavids. And as I said before, he had been governor in Trabzon right on the border with the east, with the groups that would coalesce into the Safavid Empire. So he's quite familiar with that terrain um, and with those enemies. Um, and so if you wanted to read more into this, you could say that he's waiting for a moment to really strike at these enemies that had been bothering him his entire life. So after this almost year of marching across Anatolia, it's in August that the two armies meet in a valley, the Valley of Chalderon. The Ottomans have superior guns to the Safavids. Their horses, importantly, have been trained around the sound of gunfire and are not startled by cannons and, and the sound of muskets and things. And the Ottomans carry the day fairly quickly. It takes only about a day for the Ottomans to declare victory on the plains of Chalduron. The Safavid army retreats to the east and Selim and his forces continue marching to the east and eventually reach all the way to Tabriz in northern Iran. And they camp in Tabriz for a few weeks. Winter is now approaching. We're now at the end of September. Selim wants to stay in Tabriz, winter there, and then continue campaigning in the spring. His forces, though, rebel against this idea they're tired and weary and want to get back to Istanbul, don't want to fight again in the spring. And so Selim is, is forced to retreat from uh, Tabriz and return to Istanbul. So there is this kind of big what if here. What if they would have wintered in Tabriz? Selim clearly wanted to. Would they have been able to push further east into the heart of Iran, deal a kind of final death blow to uh, the Safavid Empire, which again had only been around up to this point for 15 years or so. So still a very young state, you know, that's a big that's a big what if. In Ottoman history and in Safavid history, the Ottomans and the Safavids will fight a series of wars over the next two centuries. So, nevertheless, the victory at Chaldron make, makes obvious to major powers around the world. The Venetians are keeping tabs on what's happening in Chaldron. Other powers in Europe are keeping tabs. The Mamluks, importantly, see the flex of Selim's strength at Chaldron, and that serves as a warning for them. As we said, it's in 1516, only, only a year and a half later that he moves against the Mamluks. So Chaldiran sends a message of, of arrival that Selim has now arrived on the world stage and is a power to be reckoned with. Now, I want to just step back a bit here because you spend a lot of time in the book talking about how the Ottoman Empire during Selim's reign and before it in the 15th century had this, this enormous impact on the European imagination, European self-understanding and indeed the course of European history, uh, which you argue in this era was very much motivated by opposition to the Ottoman threat in many senses. Could you just introduce that theme for us, how uh, the Ottoman Empire loomed large in the European imagination in the 15th and 16th centuries? 
Sure. You know, to begin, I think 14, we, we have to return to 1453. One of that's the, the, the Ottoman is, conquest of Istanbul. That's right. The Ottoman conquest of the eastern capital of Christendom, of Constantinople. One of the, one, the, the Pope in this period describes the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople as plucking out one of the eyes of Christendom. Very evocative. So it's, it's this sense of enormous loss for Christian Europe. And in the minds of, of certain Christians, a belief that this is the beginning of the end times, when the devil will rise from the east and overtake Christendom and precipitate the end of the world, uh, the devil at the gates. Mehmed the Conqueror, Mehmed II, is the sultan who conquers Constantinople. After that, his forces continue to move west. So quite famously, he sends a fleet to conquer the town of Otranto, which is on the very tip of the heel of Italy. This is the only time that the Ottomans conquer territory on the Italian peninsula. This is in 1480. And for Christendom, you know, after having lost this capital city, Constantinople in the east, now the Ottomans are on their territory in Europe on the Italian peninsula and potentially from there can march up the Italian peninsula. There's all kinds of hysterical rumors around this period that Mehmet has designs on Sicily. Sicily, very strategic, of course, um, because it, it is sort of the door between the Western and the Eastern Mediterranean. Whoever controls Sicily can control access to either side of the sea. So that causes enormous concerns for uh, European powers. Uh, Mehmed dies in 1481. And at that point, his fleet retreats from Otranto. And the Ottomans will never again ever gain territory on the Italian peninsula. But nevertheless, there's this sense of encroachment west in the Mediterranean. And it's not just the Ottomans. It's also the Mamluks who control all of North Africa. And from North Africa, send out various raiding expeditions um, across the sea to different European holdings. It's also quite crucially for my story, there are Muslims in Spain, obviously. Muslims had ruled in Spain for 800 years by the end of the 15th century and uh, had you know very important kingdoms in the south of Spain in this period in the 1480s and 1490s. So in the very moment that the Ottomans are pushing west in the Mediterranean, other Muslim powers, the Mamluks are raiding Christian holdings um, all over the Western Mediterranean, and you have Muslim powers ruling in southern Spain, there's a sense that Islam is encroaching upon Christendom in a very real way, and this causes this kind of hysteria in European Christian minds. There's an economic story here, of course, that the Mamluks and the Ottomans controlled trade routes with the East. After 1453, this, this grip on the Eastern trade only becomes tighter. So uh, a place like Genoa, for example, has all kinds of trading interests in the Eastern Black Sea, which you can only access through the Bosphorus Straits, through Constantinople. And so once the Ottomans control Constantinople, it becomes much more difficult for the Genoese and other European trading powers to operate in the Black Sea. You know, we often teach children in school that Columbus sailed west. We don't often think about why. I mean, one of the one of the reasons is to try to access trade with the East because of the monopolization of the Ottomans and the Mamluks that he was searching for other other trading routes. This is true also of Vasco da Gama, obviously. So all all of these things point to a sense of Muslim power around the Mediterranean, and that the Europeans need to find some way around this gargantuan power in the Mediterranean. 
And of course, you give plenty of really eye-opening examples in the book of how people like Christopher Columbus were, in some senses, obsessed really with Islam. They saw it as this enormous threat to Christendom, and they interpreted much of what they saw, even after they crossed the Atlantic, in terms of what they already knew about uh, the clash between Christianity and Islam. Could you just tease out that theme a bit here as well? Sure, sure. So Christopher Columbus, you know, as an enormously important historical figure, in some ways is an exemplar of this sense of an encroaching Islam on Christendom that I was talking about before. He's born in 1451, so just a few years before the Ottomans take Constantinople in Genoa. He has an understanding of the loss of Genoese maritime power in the eastern Black Sea and then also in the eastern Mediterranean. He would have have seen crusaders coming in and out of Genoa, crusaders attempting to conquer Jerusalem for Christendom. So he would have been, even as a, as a young child, exposed to this kind of sense that the East is a threatening, dangerous place that is encroaching upon even his small neighborhood in Genoa. He, in school, read the work of Marco Polo. Marco Polo, who describes uh, what he terms the Grand Khan of the East, which is is a, a figure that perhaps has some historical precedence, but is essentially an imaginary figure. Marco Polo writes that he has an interest in Christianity, the Grand Khan of the East, potentially will convert. And this idea that there's a potentate on the other side of Islam that maybe will convert to Christianity, align with the Christians of Europe, and then in one millennial pincer move, these forces will converge on the Muslims in the Middle East, destroy them, recapture Jerusalem, and expunge this evil from the earth. That, again, is something that's baked into Columbus's daily bread, if you like, as a, as a child. Once he becomes a bit older, he begins sailing on various uh, military and mercantile ships that bring him in actual contact with the Muslim world. Before, it was all imaginary in church and in school. But in the 1470s, he goes to Tunis. He is working for a French king in this period. One of the king's ships is captured by forces in North Africa, and Columbus attempts to uh, retrieve the ship by sailing towards Tunis. And he describes seeing Tunis as uh, this kind of foreboding place off on the, on the coast. They don't actually land on the coast, they sail along it. A bit later, he is working for um, a Genoese trading family, and he goes to Chios, the um, island in the Aegean, just off the Anatolian coast, to trade in Mastic. Chios is famous for the mastic that grows naturally there, resin that is produced by the trees of Chios. And he's there in the 1470s. Many soldiers from Chios had fought as part of the Byzantine Empire's army defending Constantinople from the Ottoman um, incursion in 1453. And so he's regaled with tales of the Ottomans and of their sort of bloodthirstiness while he's on Chios. So again, this kind of brings Islam and the Ottomans alive for him and matches up with some of the things that he had learned about as a child, that Islam is encroaching from the East, that it's hungry for territory from Christendom, etc. He eventually makes it to Iberia and then is in Iberia in the late 1480s in the moment of the Reconquista, of the Catholic conquering of the Muslim kingdoms of the South in Iberia. And he's quite aware, again, that there is this clash between Christendom and Islam happening not only in Chios, in the eastern 
Eastern Mediterranean, not only in his imagination in Genoa, but here in Spain, right? So everywhere that he's been, seemingly, this conflict is a lie for him. So, so what I argue in the book is that Columbus is shaped by this world, by these experiences, by what he's taught in school, by his own firsthand knowledge of Islam, as scant um, as it is. Um, this sense that Islam is all around Christendom, that Christendom has to find a way of dealing with Islam, right? That Islam is a danger, that Muslims are enemies, are other, are something that needs to be dealt with um, through Christian power. And he doesn't forget that once he crosses the Atlantic. And you see this in the things that he writes about his early experiences in, you know, what we call the Caribbean today. And again, he's an exemplar of this first generation generation of conquistadors. So you see these kinds of things in other people's writings as well. So Columbus, for example, describes a group of Taino women, indigenous women in the Caribbean. He describes them as quote-unquote Moorish women, Muslim women. He describes some of their clothing as Moorish clothing. He describes some of the weapons that Taino fighters use as being akin to the, the swords that Muslims use in the old world. So what I want to argue in this part of the book is that this major geopolitical force of the old world, Christendom and Islam, is a major geopolitical force in the new world because the Europeans that are coming to the new world, um, that arrive in the new world, bring that with them in their imaginations. Cortez, a few years after Columbus, describes Montezuma, the Aztec leader, as a sultan. In Mexico, he says that he saw 400 mosques in Mexico, mesquitas, um, so presumably Aztec temples. Um, this language of Islam comes to infuse the understanding of difference in the new world, of indigenous society, of indigenous peoples, of indigenous polities. They even think that there's some kind of terrestrial connection between the Muslim world and the new world, right? I mean, Columbus, until the day he dies, believes that he's landed in Asia and that therefore, you know, Muslims could have somehow traveled from uh, the Muslim world to the Caribbean as fantastical as that sounds to us. And even in the case of Cortez, he, after his experiences in the New World, after, after conquering Mexico, he comes back and fights the last battle of his life in Algiers against Muslim forces in Algiers. So in figures like Cortez, you have um, someone who fought Muslims in the Old World before going to the New World to fight against indigenous peoples and then coming back to the Old World to fight against Muslims again. So I'm very interested in thinking about these continuities between an understanding of an enemy as Muslim in the old world and indigenous in the new world and how those things come together. And of course, the very fact that the Ottomans and previously the Mamluks dominated the East Mediterranean in the old world was a key, one of the key reasons really why, as you say, taking the risk of casting out west across the Atlantic was attractive for Spanish explorers because they couldn't dominate east. And this uh, was obviously a period when the conquest of many Mamluk territories, uh, through the, the conquest of those territories, the Ottomans came to dominate more in the East Mediterranean under a uh, in the first and I just you know as I was reading the, those passages in the book it's uh, kind of just uh, struck me again you know that this area of the world is once again kind of um, at the centre of various uh, geopolitical arm wrestling contests going on and uh, you know 500 years later the East Mediterranean is once again sort of the eye of a storm and uh, the people who can control the East Mediterranean feel that they uh, have a significant advantage over uh, rivals. 
That's that's right. You know, for someone like Columbus, his voyages are an act of desperation to try to get around Muslim power in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the Eastern Mediterranean then, as now, is a region of transit, of connection between Europe, the Mediterranean world, and the Indian Ocean world, right? Even before the Suez Canal, um, overland trade routes passed through the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey, you know, what is today Turkey, is often described as the land bridge between Europe and Asia. So the Eastern Mediterranean is um, a region of really important strategic um, significance. And as we're discovering today, also has potentially some mineral resources and natural gas resources and other things that, of course, you know, in Salim's day weren't, weren't important at all. But but yes, this is the, the coming together of three continents in the Eastern Mediterranean, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and a kind of fulcrum that allows one to control much of, of global trade. So highly important, even, even in our you know, technologically advanced world, something like the Suez Canal remains crucially important for bringing petroleum, for example, from various places to other places. And, you know, Salim understood the strategic importance of controlling something like Egypt, which would allow him um, access to the Indian Ocean world. And again, this is part of the importance of the Ottoman Empire to world history is that it controls this, as I describe it in the book, the, the center of the world, the navel of the world, where you can control access between Europe and Asia. Now, one thing I did wonder about is that while in many ways you say that uh, the narrative sort of brings the Ottoman Empire and indeed Muslims back to the centre of uh, European and indeed world history in this era, there's one argument that could be made and that is that they were very central, of course, but they were also influential as a kind of other, seen as a civilizational threat. So I can imagine some people sort of reading the book and having a particular narrative actually confirmed for themselves, you know, that the Ottoman Empire was not as it would come to be seen in later centuries as a more integral part of the uh, European state system, but was very much a civilizational other and something to define yourself against. So there's that kind of tension there, you know, bringing the Ottoman Empire back to the center of history and historiography in these in this era, but at the same time coming to realize that for many people it was really the essential other that uh, was, a, was a profound threat. Does that tension strike you? What do you make of, uh, what would you say to the people who would read the book in that way? Yeah, I, I think it confirms the notion that the Ottomans are central to geopolitics in this period. I, I mean, if we were to think about a contemporary comparative example, the US and China, two major world powers, maybe the major world powers in this moment. So you could say it's an antagonistic relationship in all kinds of ways in terms of rhetoric and military strategy. But economically, the two are very much tied together, right? You know, most of what Americans consume is made in China. The technology transfer between the two countries etc. So I think this is often the case when you're talking about major world powers, that there are both what we might call negative um, aspects to those relationships, but also quite positive ones also, right? So it's clear, for example, that the Ottomans influenced um, architecture in Europe in, in very real ways. After 1453 is a great influx of Greek and Latin manuscripts into European libraries. Um, we know that, you know, various European travelers in the Ottoman Empire brought back with them textiles, texts, other kinds of technology that were adapted in Europe. So the, these are these are relationships of push and pull. And I think that in some ways is always the case when thinking about geopolitics.
And to bring the story right up to the present day, at the end of the book, you refer to the Sultan selling the first bridge, which is the mm -hmm. third bridge over the Bosphorus, which was uh, opened a few years ago uh, by Erdogan and other government officials. And it just brought, it brings to mind, you know, the fact that figures like selling the first really do loom large in the contemporary imagination in Turkey. And you sort of connect selling the first and his uh, image in contemporary Turkey to Erdogan. And And, you know, the fact that Selim I is very much admired by Erdogan and the mm. fact that he expanded the empire and made it a much more of a self-consciously, I think, Islamic state is uh, something that resonates, I think, in today's uh, Turkey, we can say. So just wonder if you could conclude by bringing the story up to the present day. You know, how do you think about Erdogan in relation to Selim I? Absolutely. You know, Erdogan is remarkable, we could say, in, in many different kinds of ways. One is the way he contrasts himself against the other leaders of Republican Turkey with his embrace of the Ottoman Empire. And as I argue, Selim looms very large in that story for Erdogan. The bridge, he could have picked any any name for that bridge. It didn't even have to be a sultan, and he chose to name it after Selim. I think the reason that Selim resonates so profoundly for Erdogan is uh, some of the things that you were pointing to. The, the fact that Selim is a world conqueror, that he defeats his enemies in the region. Quite conveniently for Erdogan, a Shiite Safavid power in Iran and a Sunni Muslim power in the Middle East. So in, in the kind of game of regional hegemony in the Middle East, Salim is a symbol of Turkish victory, uh, something that Erdogan very much wants for himself. And then beyond that, the fact that Salim was this terror in the minds of people around the world is also something that Erdogan strives to be, right? To be a, a, a universal figure that can project Turkish power into the world. The fact that Selim is the first figure in Ottoman history who is both um, sultan and caliph. Erdogan uh, very much wants to make Islam central to his rhetoric of rule in Turkey today. And Selim, again, is a very convenient symbol of that. He's also a symbol of Turkishness in a very real way, right? His massacre of the Alevis, right? Going after Shiites in Iran, um, attacking an Arab empire. All of, all of these things are part of a, a Turkish nationalist mode of thinking about the world that that. Erdogan also, as the leader of Turkey, is very much a part of. And we see this in his politics. So not only the naming of the bridge, uh, but his patronage of Selim's tomb, his language of, of the caliphate, even something as, as symbolic as the conversion of the Hagia Sophia to a mosque, again, taps into this kind of millennial notion in Christendom that the taking of Constantinople causes enormous injury to the Christian body. So, you know, for all these reasons, I think Selim is very symbolic and useful for someone like Erdogan. You know, if we think even more expansively, you know, I'm speaking to you from the United States where um, the current president is very interested in ginning up figures from the American past who are convenient for his own politics in the present. So um, a figure like Andrew Jackson, who was responsible for many things, but but one of which is the Trail of Tears, um, whereby Native Americans in, in Georgia were forcibly removed to Oklahoma 
And so th this is a symbol for Trump of, you know, going after domestic enemies of being a strong American nationalist leader. I think in some ways, Salim similarly plays a role for Erdogan. So in the United States, if we have, you know, Confederate monuments that are being dealt with in all kinds of ways, or in Britain, the monuments to colonial officials, naming the bridge after Salim in some ways is a similar move of tapping into that to that history and making a very pointed, sending a very pointed message to a community in the present about a certain leader's view of the world. That was Alan Mikhail. Many thanks to him for joining for this episode number 123. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.